a little bit, what we've said about life groups, reasons why we should be a part of them. Uh, the first week I told you we have a natural tendency to be in community anyway, so why not be in community with purpose, community that brings us together. Uh, we said that it allows us to take the masks off where we say everything's great, and we say, you know what, things aren't great, but you can pray for me, you can support me, we can be in community. Then the following week we had very light attendance because we had that wintry weather, and I said we're going to make church as easy as one, two, three. If you've ever wondered how you can really get plugged into the church, how, how do I know I'm doing enough, not that we have to do things for our salvation, but to be an active member, to really uh, contribute to the overall community of the church, we said one, two, three. One, come to worship on Sunday morning. Two, be a part of a life group. And three, serve in some way regularly. Simple as that. That'll really free us up. We won't be burdened by feeling like we're just stressed out by doing so much at the church or we won't feel like, you know, I'm not doing anything, but I don't know what to do. Uh, so here we have one, two, three uh, real simple steps to be a part of the life at Yorkshire. The last one is one that's very important, um, and I'll illustrate it simply by saying, uh, look around you, and if you see somebody you haven't seen in months at, uh, that would normally be sitting by you, uh, we would say they went out through the back door of the church. It's not an official term, but it makes a lot of sense if we think about it. The back door is saying they came in, they were apart, but then for some reason they were able to slip out without anybody really going after them, without anybody really saying, hey, you're a part of this family, be a part. You know, we want you to be here. How can we support you? What can we do? And life groups close the back door of the church because you're plugged in. You've got community. Even if the preaching changes, if the music changes, as long as the theology, theology doesn't change, you've got a reason to be a part of us because we're a family, we're a unit, and we want you here. We want to we wanna be for you. We want to be for us. And so we close the back door of the church when we have tight community in our life groups. Uh, you'll hear a whole lot more about that tonight at Life Group Launch at 5.30 p.m. in room 204. I hope you plan on being there. If you haven't signed up online, still come. Um, we're gonna go over some things and talk about what it means to really be a life group, what you can expect. And there's some videos and things that'll be broken up. Um, it should be less than an hour. Shouldn't take a ton of your time tonight. There is childcare available. There's youth group. Um, so places for the kids to go as well. This morning, I wanna ask you if you've ever really wished there was just some formula you could use to know you're doing your Christian walk right. Or, you know, there's all this stuff going on around me. There's all this stuff, you know, happening in the world. I just want to make sure I know I'm doing the Christian walk correctly. It'd be really easy if someone could just spell it out for me and I would know um, if I'm a Christian, this is what I'm supposed to do. And as I was thinking about this, as I looked at the text for this morning, it reminded me of high school geometry class. Because in high school geometry class, we went over conditional statements or if-then statements. What it is is it says, if this, then that. If this, then that. If it is 32 degrees or lower outside, then water will become ice. If I mix red and blue, then I will get purple. And is there a formula that simple for my Christianity? And I'm going to say, yes, there is. And we see it in Hebrews 10. And what we're going to see in Hebrews 10 is that we can know what to do as a Christian simply because the if of being a Christian applies to you. So we'll look at the if of being a Christian, what exactly that is, and consider three thens or results or con conditions that absolutely apply to you and can transform your life and your Christian experience 
if we apply them. So the first thing is understanding the if. We need to understand the if. If Jesus is your savior, what does that if mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start with verses 19 and 20, where we see the if introduced. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place of, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. You have confidence to approach God. If Jesus is your savior, you have confidence to approach God. You see that word since. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, it's assumed that it's real. The the writer's saying, we know this is the way it's going to be. It's guaranteed. And so since you have confidence, and you know, I know you have confidence this morning because I didn't see a single one of you bring in a bull or a goat to be sacrificed today. Nobody did. We understand that there are things in the Old Testament that we no longer have to do. And if we understand that, that's what our confidence is to be based in. You see, over and over again in the Old Testament, the prophets had to bring sacrifices. The people would bring sacrifices to, to those in the temple, to the priests. And they would slaughter animals to, to remind them of the death that was a consequence of sin. Over and over again, people were reminded that they couldn't do it on their own that there was nothing they could do to atone for their sins. They could just offer a sacrifice, but they had to do it over and over and over again because there's no finality in sacrificing an animal. And over and over and over again, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies year after year after year on one special day. But as they did that, we need to understand that a holy God can't be in the presence of sin. Because sin defiles holiness. And so as we think about that priest going into that holy of holies, one commentator says it would have been a heart-pounding few minutes. Because here I am, a, a sinner. Yes, I'm a priest. Yes, I've done everything you told me I need to do in order to come into this place. But still, you're a holy God and I'm an unholy person. It would have been a heart-pounding few minutes to be in that situation. If you call it a heart-pounding few minutes, that's not confidence. But we have confidence. That's what the writer says. He says, we have confidence. And our confidence comes because that veil, that curtain that separated us from the holy place was torn. It was ripped in two. We tend to pass over that part of the crucifixion story um, rather quickly, but it's incredibly symbolic. That, that, that thing that, that kept us from the holy of holies, the thing that kept us separated from God, was torn in two when Jesus died. It means we have confidence. He took down a barrier. He broke the barrier. He took down a no trespassing sign and instead put up a welcome sign. Doesn't being welcomed feel good? As often as I can, I like to stand outside the doors and open them for you as you come in on Sunday morning because there's something great about being welcomed to a place. Being welcomed feels really good. On Christmas Eve, Josh and Jamie Strange and their family welcomed people into the church building because there's something about being welcomed that feels really, really good. 
And there's something really, really good about being welcomed into fellowship with God through Christ. The theological term for this welcoming is access. We have access to the Father because Jesus is our Savior. We can approach him. You know, it's why we say, in Jesus' name, amen, when we pray. It's the only reason we can really pray to God is because of Jesus. And so in Jesus' name, we come before you. I had a professor who would always uh, end his prayers by praying, and we thank you for Jesus Christ through whom we have access to pray. Amen. That's powerful. That's powerful that Jesus gave us access to God. That Jesus allows us to approach God in prayer. But there's still more. You see, our confidence is also in the fact that Jesus isn't still working on this. He isn't still working on this. Like we said, the priests of the Old Testament had to do these sacrifices over and over and over again. But the Bible says Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. Once for all. And then what? What did he do? Did you ever wonder what he did after he accomplished this sacrifice? He sat down. He sat down. Uh, Same chapter, chapter 10, but verses 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God. While all the other sacrifices were repeated, this one was once for all, never had to be done again. As we look through the Old Testament and the, the very uh, um, detailed um, requirements for the temple, nowhere do we see a provision for seats. Nowhere do we see a provision for the place for the priest to sit down because they were busy. They had things to do. They had to keep working and working and working for the atonement of the sins of the people. Jesus did it once for all and sat down. So our confidence is also in the fact that Jesus isn't working on this. So we have access to God. It's final. It's complete. We also have a heavenly almighty advocate. An advocate. We see that in verse 21. It says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we are the house of God. Jesus Christ is the high priest. He is over us, advocating for us. Again, going to the Old Testament, um, God was very specific in dealing with what the, uh, the priest should wear, what they should do. But the writer of the Hebrews says that was just a shadow of things to come. As he opens chapter 10 in verse 1, he said, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. The writer of Hebrews said, All that stuff in the Old Testament, as detailed as it was, as important as it was, is only a shadow of what Jesus would accomplish, of what Jesus has accomplished. It was just a shadow. We start to get the idea of what life will be like when God sends his son. But until we see Jesus, we don't truly get it. The priest that said wore 12 stones around their neck, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
But the Bible says that Jesus bears our name, not around his neck, but on his heart. It's a euphemism for keeping us close, for praying for us, for interceding for us, for advocating for us, for fighting for us. Have you ever had an advocate, somebody who really pulled for you, somebody who really fought for you? As I was thinking about this, I remembered one time in elementary school, I was either in second or third grade. We had gotten on the bus uh, after the school day had ended, and there was some thing going on between my sister and another kid, and the kid was being pretty, pretty mean. We all sat together, my brother, my sister, and I, we all sat together on the bus, and this kid was just doing something to pick her on her. I don't remember exactly what it was, but my older brother, Josh, he told that kid what's what. Uh, he, he said, look, you stop that. You go sit somewhere else. He advocated for my sister. And that's something that has just stuck out to me for, for since then. And, and it's not something I, I bring up much, but uh, as I think about an advocate, that was such a clear picture of it. And we have an advocate in Christ. He's the one in charge of the house of God. So we have access to God and we have an advocate on our behalf before God in Jesus Christ. That's the if. If we're going to understand the if, if Jesus is your savior, that's your reality. That's your reality. You can approach God because you have access and an advocate. So what about the then? What about the then? If Jesus is your savior, then we see an A, B, and C lined out for us in the rest of this passage. First, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If Jesus is your savior, then your relationship with God must be a priority. If Jesus is your savior, then your relationship with God must be a priority. Because you've got this confidence, because you have this assurance that Jesus is on your side, enjoy the relationship. Enjoy the relationship. You're not trying to win his affection. You're not trying to win his attention. You've already got it, and so enjoy it. Enjoy it. If you've ever been in a conversation with somebody where all of a sudden they start looking over your shoulder, looking past you to something else going on in the room or someone else who entered, <coughs> you start to wonder if they really value their time, your time that they're, that they're uh, taking up by talking to you. And the truth is, uh, it's annoying. It's annoying because they don't value your time. They don't value you if, if they're looking past you to these other things that are happening around them. It's not that way with God. Uh, we have his attention. We have his attention. When we talk to people like that, it's as though you're just a means to an end until something else comes up that might be a better option. God has no better option than to hear from you and to talk to you. You're not just a means to an end. And so how do you, how do, you do this? How do you really make your relationship with God a priority? It's as simple as the same way you make relationships here on earth a priority. You have conversation. You spend time together. In other words, you pray. No relationship can exist without conversation. And I, I'd venture to say that the reason Christians aren't closer to God 
is because we don't communicate with him nearly enough. The writer of Hebrews was talking uh, uh, to a group of people who were potentially going to give up Christianity because they were facing all these struggles, all these trials, and it was a lot easier to go back to the old way of living. Once you become a Christian, we need to pray, but it's a lot easier to just go on with our life the way it was before, not change our schedule around, not wake up early, not go to bed late uh, so we can have that time to pray. The writer of Hebrews says we need to value the relationship, make our relationship with God a priority. Talk to God, be genuine, be sincere. He wants to hear from you and you're not a means to an end. So if Jesus is your savior, your relationship with God must be a priority. If Jesus is your savior, hold on to the hope that Christ provides. Hold on to the hope that Christ provides. That's verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. R. Kent Hughes is a, a scholar, a theologian, and he says this. So many people live on so little, surviving in this world, just putting one foot in front of the other as they depend on unsubstantiated, ungrounded hope. The world hopes that everything will just work out. Their hope is in tomorrow. Their hope is in getting that job, that scholarship, that big win, that next medical exam, that new relationship. But it's unsubstantiated, ungrounded hope. It's all based on an if that has no guarantee. We have guarantees. Our hope is neither unsubstantiated nor ungrounded. In chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Of an anchor of the soul. Think about what an anchor does. An anchor holds you still, even when the waters are going. Even when the waves are churning, the anchor makes sure you stay where you need to stay. It's not that we're fastened to concrete and there's a rigidity that doesn't allow us to experience life. We still experience life, but we're, we're grounded. We have something mooring us to a foundation. We have something keeping us tied down. There's a constancy, a surety, a, a groundedness in the midst of the movements of life when our hope is in Christ. And secondly, that passage says that God is faithful. God is faithful. The idea of unfaithfulness is so predominant in our society, but the writer reminds us that God is faithful, that you can trust him. You can trust him. The New Living Translation puts it this way, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. That sounds like a breath of fresh air. God can be trusted to keep his promises. So if Jesus is your savior, your relationship with God must be a priority. If Jesus is your savior, hold on to the hope that Christ provides. And finally, if Jesus is your savior, don't do life alone. If Jesus is your savior, don't do life alone. 
looking at verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a great verse to share with people who have stopped attending church because it gets right to the heart of it. It says, you should be in church. You should be a part of Christian community. Here are some more if-then statements for us to consider. If you join the army, then you should be with the army. If you have a membership at Sam's Club, you should shop at Sam's Club. If you hold a position on a team, you should be a part of that team. If Jesus is your savior, you should be a part of a church. You should be a part of a church. We need to remember that the church is God's idea. God's idea is for us to be a part of the church. Therefore, whatever reason we come up with to not be a part of the church, we've got to understand that's not a God-given reason because the God-given aspect is be a part of a Christian community. And, you know, every excuse uh, to miss church or to not participate, we'd be hard-pressed to defend from the word of God. We'd be hard-pressed to defend any reason to not be a part of Christian community with the Bible. God wants his people together. One of the common excuses for why people don't want to be in church is because of the hypocrites, because we're sinners, and yet we expect people to not sin, and that's true. So we need to consider how we uh, word our message, perhaps. But there's also a, a truth that people who stay away from God or from church need to understand about hypocrites. When you allow a hypocrite to come between you and God, the hypocrite is closer to God than you are. Say that again. When you allow a hypocrite to come between you and God, the hypocrite is closer to God than you are. That's associated with Zig Ziglar. I tried to confirm that this week. I couldn't find it. But regardless of who said it, um, it's true. And... Uh, as I say all this, you're like, oh, those are good points, and I can shake my head approvingly because I'm sitting in church right now, and uh, so it doesn't apply to me. Preaching to the choir there. All right. Um, but there's something for those of us who are here, too. There's something for those of us who are here, too. It's not just about being in church. Church, it's about being the church. It's about being the church. It's about interacting with each other. Notice how it says we're not just supposed to come to church. We're supposed to stimulate one another to love and, and good deeds and encourage one another. That can't happen when all we do is come and sit in a row. Sure, you get that, those few seconds of, you know, turn and greet somebody around you, or you get in or you're leaving and you say good morning to the person around you, but um, really encouraging one another, stimulating one another to love and good deeds doesn't happen in rows. Andy Stanley regularly uses the phrase, circles are better than rows. Circles are better than rows. Rows don't allow us to connect. We focus on the front. We can worship. We can learn. But we don't connect. We don't connect. You can sit in a row by yourself, even if there's people on your left and your right. You can sit in a row by yourself, even if there's people to your left and to your right, but you can't sit in a circle alone. 
You can't sit in a circle alone. And you say, yeah, but I've got all this stuff going on. You don't know my calendar. You don't know my schedule. So I do this Christian community thing when it fits my schedule. When it fits what I need to do, I have stuff I need to take care of. Um, I do it when I can. I just want us to look quickly at Acts chapter 2, verses 45 and 46, where it says, And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all, as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. People were actually giving up their stuff in order to focus on and help the Christian community. And if we go to verse 47, it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. So even while doing this, they were getting along. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So people actually gave up their stuff in order to focus on and help the Christian community. And the result was that other people came to know Christ too. That sounds fantastic. That sounds wonderful. And it begs the question, is there something you need to let go of in order to focus on and and help the Christian community that you're a part of? Is there a habit, a hobby, something that just absolutely monopolizes your time or, or anything else that you know that is too much and it keeps you from valuing this Christian community, keeps you from doing life with other people. We know the world isn't getting any better. The Bible predicted that. It told us this was going to happen. But the last part of of this verse tells us You know, as each day passes, we need to be even more focused on each other. We need to be even more focused on on this community, valuing it, growing it. If you have any doubt about that, uh, look to this decision in New York. You know, everything my dad said I agree with, and I would just also remind you that the first person ever to worship Jesus Christ was John when he was a fetus in his mother's womb. Jesus hadn't been born yet either. The world will not get better until Christ returns. Therefore, we must value Christian community. So if Jesus is your savior, then your relationship with God must be a priority. Then you should hold on to the hope that Christ provides and you really shouldn't do life alone. You shouldn't do life alone. Oftentimes when we preach a sermon, we we think of, you know, different ways we could suggest you apply the sermon. Uh, We let you think of different ways you could apply it philosophically, practically, whatever. Well, this one ties in really well to a way you can apply the sermon today. Concrete, no arguing with it. Life groups will allow you to live out the if-then of your faith. Life groups will allow you to live out the if-then of your faith. See, as we gather for Bible study, we'll focus on the truths of Scripture. We'll solidify that if. We'll solidify what it means for Jesus to be our Savior, how that works out in our lives. 
but you'll be doing it in a place where prayer is actually encouraged, where hope is established and celebrated, and where you're not alone. Prayer doesn't have to be scary. I know the idea of praying in front of a large group of people is very intimidating, but if you're surrounded by, you know, six to ten people who are on the same journey you are, and you just say, hey, you know what, none of us are professional prayers, but we're Christians, so let's practice it. And you pray together. You'll encourage one another. You'll stimulate one another. You'll do what this passage talks about. The writer of Hebrews is clear, if Jesus is your Savior, then you should make your relationship with God a priority. You should hold on to your unshakable hope and you should be enjoying the community of faith he's provided for you. So all I can say is be a part of a life group. It's brand new. It's something exciting, something that can really impact this church. And if I'm honest, I think it'll really propel us if we take it seriously. It's not all Bible study. There's times for fun, times for excitement, times for serving together. But it's a way to have that community. It's a way to live out the if-then statements of our faith. If Jesus is your Savior, what does it mean for your Christian walk today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just the fact I can begin a prayer this way is because of what Jesus accomplished. We can come before you not with heart-pounding anxiety, but with calm reassurance that you love us, that you are for us, not against us. That if you put these if-then statements into your word, it must be what's best for us. Help us to trust that. Help us to believe that. Help us to trust that giving up some of the things we enjoy so much so that we can focus on you really is best. And expose those things to us. Work in us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son, for the access and the advocacy that provides for us. And I pray for your blessing, for your strengthening upon each person who's willing to say, I want to try this out. I want to be a part of a life group and and bless this ministry that it wouldn't just be uh, something to do, but it would be a life-transforming way for us to grow closer to you and for others to come to know you as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.